Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back again to another episode of the Stephen Sully Study. Um, very rare that I interview someone for a second time, but when I interviewed Johnny previously, and I can't believe that the first podcast actually happened last 2019 in June, two and a half years ago, I did say that I wanted to have a podcast where I can interview a what I would regard as a thoroughbred entrepreneur. Thank you. And interview that individual, you, interview the talk about the journey thus far. Yeah. So when when we first interviewed you, when I first interviewed you, you were, how can I say, I'm going to try and say this in the most sort of professional way, but you you were slightly part-time in William Wood Watches. I don't know if that's the right sort of uh, description, but you was also had a full-time job at Lloyds Bank. That's right. And you was going through that crossroads type of scenario. You knew that you was always going to go down William Wood Watches because that was your passion. Yeah. That wasn't just a hobby. That was something that you really wanted to get behind. But like a lot of people, they fall into the trap of having a nine to five, which is paying them the bills. Yeah. Obviously got overheads, obviously got commitments, obviously got a lifestyle. And a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, sadly, don't take that leap of faith and they stay in that nine to five. And before you know it, five, 10, 15, 20 years go by and they start regretting it. And mm-hmm. their passion suddenly turns into a hobby and then the hobby sort of dwindles away because they're not backing it. They're not giving it the full full attention that it needs. And I've got to say, you're one of the rare individuals that took the leap of faith. Thanks, Steve. You've now got the brand to a high, high level, which you're going to talk about. Yeah. And I'm just so pumped to hear this story for my... I mean, because it's not just about the brand. It's also about your own your own lifestyle, yeah. who you've become as, in, as an individual. So welcome you back onto the podcast. Thank Johnny you. Johnny Garrett, that's how you pronounce your surname. Garrett, yeah. Yep. Um, founder of William Wood Watches. Uh, we can touch on, touch, t- touch on again the reason and the inspiration behind the watches mm-hmm. uh, just to refresh people's memory. Um, but yeah, what a journey so far. So uh, how's it, how's it begun in the watch world? Thank you very much. What an introduction that is. My God, um, th- things are going fantastic. Whenever anybody asks me how uh, things are going, I just say life is exciting to be able to do what I see as not a job, the one thing I, this has never felt like for the last five years, because it's our five year anniversary in March, it has never, ever felt like a job. Every day feels like fulfillment. And I wake up just with new, exciting opportunities, projects, collaborations, designs, and you just, you just do exciting stuff every day. And at the same time, you're able to live and have a fantastic lifestyle from it. Um, is is really cool. So uh, thanks for having us back on the show, Steve. No problem whatsoever. So as a, as a recap then, so the inspiration and where the idea was born from was actually from your granddad, correct? That's right, yeah. Okay, so he was a firefighter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'm guessing, what was that, back in the 1930s? He retired in 1982. Okay. And he was a firefighter for 25 years up in Newcastle. Okay, okay. Was his name William? William Wood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was, so William Wood was the name of my grandfather. Um, he was a, a massive, massive role model in my life. He was also a huge role model to all of the colleagues that he worked with. And 
what you'll find, I mean, I was just literally talking to you, to a colleague of yours before the podcast. He was like, wow, you've got a, a beautiful 1920s British brass firefighters helmet here straight away. Which, which is, which is here. In front which of us, is yeah. here in front. Exactly. And he says, oh, my granddad was a lifelong career firefighter. Like, I think straight away you can, you can think of somebody who is a rescue service worker, first responder and predominantly firefighter. And it is a discipline that people really respect. And, my grandfather was a, a charismatic, caring, loving guy. Um, he passed away sadly in 2009, but his legacy lives on in every single one of our timepieces that we produce. And we actually say, Steve, that we have real British firefighting history beating through every single component because we take pieces of a firefighter's helmet, we take fire hose, we take fire kit, and we put them inside every single one of our watches. Um what I notice about your, your language and what I notice about people that are passionate with what they do um, is, is, the, is the words that you use. Because mm-hmm. um, like you're saying, beating in, you know, in, in the watches and, and real pieces of um, you know, form of fire uh, components or equipment, etc., yeah. which is a part of the watch. And I think the first lesson, if a, a young entrepreneur or someone listening to this podcast is going to take away from this, is... Being passionate and being authentic towards what you're doing is so key because if you're just trying to do something for a pound note Mm -hmm. and just for the money, you might make a bit of money. Don't get me wrong. There are people that do sell things out there. They don't really believe in, but they make it work for them. Mm -hmm. But I think where you become wealthy and where you become a real solid individual in your craft, in your sector, in Mm -hmm. your company or in your own brand it is, is, is when you have that genuine passion, which you clearly do. Mm-hmm. And I was saying to Lauren earlier when she was on my train and I was coming into work, and she said, oh, what's the day looking like today? We've always got a busy day. We've got mm. collectors in here even right now. We have investors coming down. Um, we have podcast guests all the time. We're making other content for Woodbury House. We're looking at new artists for, for, for the brand. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I'm interviewing Johnny again. And I said... She, she was saying, like, he's a really good guy, you know, very, very driven, etc. Mm-hmm. And I said, if I were to describe Johnny, and I, I swear, God be my witness, is what I said, and you can ask her for yourself. I said, you know what? He's a very clean-hearted man. Mm-hmm. And that, that's how I would describe you, because everything that you say about your brand, mm-hmm. your mission, um, and what you're trying to achieve, I feel like it's really authentic, and there's mm-hmm. no hidden agenda, there's no... There's no bad bitterness in what you're saying you're 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 really driven by your brand and you're not really distracted by anything else you might be influenced or motivated by other success stories i remember Mm -hmm. when you told me about olibar brown yep which was a really successful story which might be a a small nugget we could talk about uh shortly but that's part of the reason why i want you back back as well because i think i even learn from you like I'm, Mm. i'm every time you talk and every time you speak i'm thinking wow that that makes a lot of sense. So, thanks, Steve. Yeah, like I, I can really see like the passion and the and and the 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 genuine drive behind what you're trying to do. Yeah? Mm. What you've just said there is really lovely. First and foremost, to be described as a, as a clean-hearted person is um, is lovely. But what's really interesting is just before coming over here, I sent a voice message to a friend, and I was talking about the fact that I had a bit of a bit of a breakthrough moment where. You meet so many different business people and entrepreneurs over your journey. And something that I want to do is I just want to be, you don't have to be a nasty cutthroat person to make it to the top. 
One, one of my main values is, is I want to be a nice person who gives back. I want to build an ethical, long-term, sustainable brand, which isn't just sort of clickbait, which isn't um, just looking for accelerated, quick growth. I'm trying to build something here, which is a, a legacy. I've always said from the outset that I'm building a business for the next 50 years. I don't really have an exit plan. At the end of the day, I'm growing something where I'm making decisions today for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And my my view is if you're not nice to people and you don't have an authentic approach to things, it's going to come around and bite you in the arse. I think it was, um, it was Matthew McConaughey who was on a podcast. And I think he was saying, don't leave breadcrumbs. So when you're doing things, don't leave any baggage behind. Don't not finish a project off. Don't move on to something uh, and leave breadcrumbs that you're just going to have to pick up in 8, 12, 18, 24 months time. Do it properly, be authentic, be nice, because through what we were talking about with the law of attraction and um, affirmations, the universe will start bringing things to you if you're just a good person. Definitely. Um, so going back to your, um, your granddad then, mm-hmm. What I love about like the old school, like including uh, my uh, grandparents when they were alive, it was almost like, and I hope the audience takes, takes this the right way, but I'm a bit more old school thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, women were women mm-hmm. and men were, were men. And when I think of, of an old school firefighter, not saying they're not like this right now, but I think the stereotype was actually quite accurate back then. They were hard, hard men, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter whether it was raining. It doesn't matter whether it was snowing. It doesn't matter whether it was a hot summer's day. It doesn't matter whether a whole building was on fire. Mm-hmm. These individuals were built of stone and they would go in there and the emotions wouldn't affect them. It doesn't yep. matter what they saw or what they went through. They were tough mm-hmm. and they would come out, out of that, that, you know, that, that fire, smoke a cigarette, you know, and, and just, you know, they were really tough geezers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting the impression maybe your granddad might, might have been a bit like that. Um, I think any firefighter who had a whole time career position in that era was amongst that kind of camaraderie. So yes, the older generation and our grand- grandparents' generation in general um, were just a-, a bit tougher, I'd say, for sure. And the fire service has changed drastically. I mean, you can't compare what it was like when my grandfather retired in 1982 to 2022. It's... um. It's a completely different place. Health and safety, breathing apparatus, procedures. A lot of um, red tape. A lot of red tape, yeah, but a lot of good things as well. So it's brought in diversity. Um, There are... um, Diversity is is a hugely important part of the fire service as well because that was overlooked in the past as well, wasn't it? Where there was just a whole load of blokes who were in the fire service. No females whatsoever. No, there wasn't, there wasn't. But it's good to see that diversity is coming into the fire service now too. Um, so yeah, it's evolved, but my, my grandfather definitely was a, a traditional kind of guy. But so my question is then, okay, so your, your, your grandfather was a big inspiration idol, mm-hmm. someone that he looked up to, but why spin off with the watches? Why didn't you do, I don't know, some sort of apparatus or something for the actual fire service directly? Why, why did the watches sort of, um, I don't know, float your boat, as they say? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I have always had a passion for the luxury industry and the craftsmanship that goes in behind products. So with the luxury industry, 
Somebody has really poured over every single aspect of the design to bring it to market. It's like when you're walking down the high street, I think people forget when you look at a supermarket like, I don't know, Marks and Spencers, you just think, oh, well, that's been in Britain for however many uh, decades or, or centuries or whatever. But that that is, they are names of individuals. People are actually behind those brands. And that's what I find really cool is that with luxury brands, there's so much thought and craftsmanship that goes into them, but it is a human being at the other side of it who has been able to bring this beautiful product and craftsmanship to market. And when it comes to watches, I've always been a, a fan of watches. Um, the the art of horology has always been something which has really interested me, but it's a bit like music, isn't it? There's only a certain amount of music notes that you can use to create songs. You could say that with a watch, couldn't you? You've got an asymmetrical dial. It's going to tell you the time. How, how do you make your watch brand beautiful over all of the other uh, luxury watch brands out there? How, how did you like even, like, if I today wanted to start a watch brand, which I'm not going to do, but if I wanted to start one today, where did you even start? You have to start with an idea and a concept. It also has to have a very strong, unique selling point. And I think you have to know from the very beginning what your values are. So what I'm saying is really, there's, there's got to be a bit of planning that goes into it. You can't just jump into it. Personally, for me, gone are the days where you can just make a mass-produced fashion watch. So do you remember about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, there was fashion watches all over the place. They were like less than 150 quid. You could walk into Selfridges. <clears throat> you could walk into Harvey Nichols and you could, you could buy these pieces. Now, what we found is that the consumer is really looking for something which actually has a story, an ethical side to it. It, it gives back and, and it's unique and people want to tell their friends about it. So the first thing I'd say is, is you've got to put pen to paper and you've got to think what makes you different to everyone else. From there, you can then create a design by finding a designer. You would is that have to, what you did, designer? Exactly. I found a designer up in Newcastle, actually, which is where I'm from originally. Um, we flew to Basel uh, to go to Basel World in Switzerland. We had about six or seven hours to fly in and fly out and uh, persuade some world-class suppliers to start making our watches, and, and we did that, and that was a, a real buzz. And I was doing all this, Steve, as you mentioned earlier, on a leave of absence from Lloyds Bank. So going back to your earlier point about passion... You have to have bucket loads of passion to be able to burn your, your your annual leave holidays to fly out to Basel, try and find suppliers for a watch brand that I knew always from day one would be my main career. Uh, and I knew I was taking it seriously and it wasn't just a, a hobby. That's really, really good. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so let's sort of talk about then uh, the days when you were um, at Lawyers Bank. Mm -hmm. Your role, if I remember correctly, was it heading up like the entrepreneurial, like sort of incubator type thing? It was businesses. Um, so I worked as a relationship manager uh, looking after <coughs> construction companies. Um, so all of the sort of top FTSE 100 construction companies that you see dotted all around London, all the cranes. Like Red Row, Bellway. Uh, more like your Balfour Beatties, Costains, okay. Morgan Sindels, Vonsees, Buigs. Um, Taylor Wimpy people like uh, they're more like house builders so okay. ours would be like the actual contractors who, who would build these uh, commercial developments um, they would come to the bank and uh, me and my colleague Max was the face face literally the face of the bank so if they wanted to borrow money they wanted to place money on deposit they wanted to exchange foreign currency 
if they wanted to take out some kind of car leasing, they would come to us. And I tell you what that did, that drove so much maturity and business acumen into me because for the for really from the age of, let's say, 23 to to 20, well, to, to the age I am now, basically, I was in and out of corporate offices all around London, um, big plush boardrooms, and you had to, you basically had to mature straight away. And you had to lead meetings, you had to present to people who were who were highly experienced. And obviously there was a lot of gray hair in the room and every time you were the youngest person in the room. And I think that in itself gave you a level of confidence and execution that I could carry across to, to what I was doing here. And I've always said, uh, and so many other, let's say, entrepreneurs, business people, self-help people, the likes of uh, Tony Robbins, mm-hmm. Eric Thomas, the list is endless. I think a number one skill, certainly in business, I think is is selling. Mm-hmm. And people think selling is just literally, here's a product, here's a service, here's mm-hmm. a brand and sell it. That is a big part of it, of course. But selling is more than that. Mm-hmm. Part of the dovetail um, uh, description I'm going to give uh, selling is holding a conversation. The art of holding a decent conversation, especially in business terms, yeah. with an older demographic or an older audience can be tough can mm-hmm. be very daunting can actually be quite fucking intimidating yeah especially in the boardroom mm-hmm. um i remember when for a separate company i had to go to bt sports and present in front of rio ferdinand and yeah. um one of his his peers and a few others i've got to tell you very very intimidating mm-hmm. um and when you execute it the the the, the thrill that you get the mm. the the endorphins is is better than any drug on the face of the planet mm-hmm. it's, it's just just phenomenal so this must have given you, yeah, the, the, the keys to selling. But I think more importantly, the subtle art of having a good conversation. Mm-hmm. And from that good conversation, you're actually persuading, um, you're actually making them feel comfortable with yeah. your service, your system, because of just how you, how you hold yourself. Would you say the bank gave you that? 100%. Um Selling is a huge, huge part of, of what, what you do, what I do, what, what everyone does. At the end of the day, I think peop- I think selling has a, a, a nasty sort of st- stigma attached to it. They think it's like a door-to-door salesman who's going to sort of be a wheeler-dealer kind of status. But what I think people forget, and this is why as well I think the schooling system has quite a lot of flaws to it, is ultimately your entire life is persuading other human beings um, to get on board with with the direction of travel that you want to go in in life, isn't it? If you think about you trying to have an interview to get into an organization, um, or even if you're just trying to build a connection, you want someone to be your mentor, you want to build a network, at the end of the day, you are selling yourself. And I think sometimes people think it's a product, it's a person, and there has to be some kind of money as an exchange that happens, but that is not what selling is. Um, and as you as you get more experience in business, I've certainly found, I don't know if you agree with me, that my, let's say, selling technique has, has evolved because now the brand is is doing well. Um, we're in a position now where we, we contribute to over 1% of the overall British watchmaking industry is made up by William Wood Watches. And that's an industry that dates back over 382 years. And we've been going for less than five years. So that's pretty good going. It's incredible. Um, 
But my, my selling with customers has changed because rather than having to feel like I need to sell, when a customer comes to me and maybe there's a watch which is out of stock, we've had customers who have even said, can I pay three times markup to, to move myself up the waiting list? Again, going back to your earlier point, I've said no, because you have to make sure that you have values and parameters from the outset. All customers are equal and they have to wait for this watch, this beautiful piece that we make in our workshop to be built, sometimes maybe six to nine months. Um, and my selling technique has now come to the stage where I can walk away and I can say no. And a lot of the times when you say no, you'll find in two days time, the customer will come back and say, do you know what? I've molded over and I'd like to wait on the waiting list or I'd like to purchase a different collection now. Rather than me going, oh, well, maybe maybe we, uh, there's another collection for you or uh, maybe we can catch up and have a have a different kind of discussion. Let them sit on it and let them come back. And it normally it normally works. Yeah, that's really, really good. Um so uh, I want to ask you a bit of a personal question. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to ask you at the time because you were still there, but it sounds to me you was like an important important role at Lloyd's. Yeah. And obviously like your own, uh, as you described yourself, you were kind of the face of, of that sector at that time. Mm -hmm. How much money was you on at the bank? All in package, 100 grand. And that was before 2028. 20, so it's pretty, pretty good money. I like take my hat off to you literally because imagine right now being a young kid like when I was younger mm -hmm. I've said this story a few times not my wife now but my former girlfriend her dad was a, an undercover police officer mm -hmm. and I nearly took his direction in life I was going to go into the marines then I was going to do that because when I looked at him he was you know a very confident man fit as in physical because yeah. he had to be um, I saw him on TV a bunch of times. He was busting all the, the the gangs. He was going into drug dens and like you know capturing like these drug lords. And I mean, like the the guy was almost like for me like a real life James Bond. I mean, he had yeah. a nice house, family, went on a few good holidays, nice car, etc. And I think back then he was on eighty grand a year, and I was like eighty grand a year. Like yeah. that is like all the money in the world. Yeah, like, I thought it was it was ginormous. So to be earning a hundred grand, mm -hmm. at, how old was you at that time? Uh, well, actually, I got promoted when I was about 20, 27. Yeah. So you know, relatively still a young man. Mm -hmm. um, very, very easy to mm -hmm. stay in that lane at a hundred grand. You easy. could say, look, I'm I'm going to have a nice house. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a nice car. I'm going to probably have two to three really nice holidays a year. Mm -hmm. I can have some luxury stuff. You know, my work ends at the end of the day i go home no drama no stresses of my brand or customers or complaints i just leave it at the door and to some people that is a success and rightly so because i get it it's, it's it could be a good good lifestyle mm -hmm. but to sacrifice all of that yeah and then to go into that is 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 massive but before you sacrificed it the sacrifice is leading up to this point where you are right now so I imagine from the hundred grand you earn in, that was gross, obviously. So you were netting whatever. Yeah. Um, let's call it 50, 60 grand, 65 grand or whatever it is. Um, I imagine some of that money, most of that money was going into your business. Yeah. From, from, the, from the initial outset, um, a lot of my, well, yeah, pretty much my own personal disposable income over and above living, I was putting into the business. And that was why when we launched our first collection in August 2017, Kickstarter was really key, Steve. That was basically a way of me almost recouping the money that I'd put into the business. Um, we, we brought our chivalrous collection to market. 
launched it on Kickstarter. I needed to raise £25,000 in people basically pre-ordering your watch. They would wait three to four months for it to be built. They get a little discount and they would follow the journey of their specific watch in production in the workshop through to delivery. And we raised £25,000 in seven days. That then allowed us to produce 500 watches. They were the first 500 watches ever to sort of touch the world. Um, we did a second launch in August, in December 2019 of our Valiant collection, which are the watches in front of you here. And ever since then, we've never had to touch Kickstarter anymore. And the other brilliant thing is our watches now, we're moving to a stage where most of the collections now aren't going to be on pre-order anymore, which is a huge move. What that means is we are taking our money and actually building the pieces six months in advance and then promoting them on the website in the hope that they all sell, which is how a normal watch company works. But to have evolved from a business which only operates on pre-orders to now, literally last week, we ordered all of our watches for the, for the entire year of 2022 um, in, in one fell swoop with no debt, no investors, no Kickstarter, just reinvesting our own profits. Is, it's, it's a pretty, pretty fun and exciting place to be. Yeah, I can imagine. Very, very exciting. Um, so um, on that note, then, there must have been sacrifices, certainly financially, that you so you're obviously investing your money. But you know, the things that typical 20 plus year olds do, which is go out on the weekend, yeah, maybe get a bit drunk. I know you're very much into your fitness like I am. Mm -hmm. But so maybe that doesn't, you know, but most people will be going out, you know, chasing females or mm -hmm. whatever, whatever they're into, uh, blowing money on cars, maybe blowing money on other watches, yeah. going on lavish yeah. holidays. What what kind of things do you feel like you sacrifice at that, at that early stage in order to simply get ahead in, in this sector? It's the social side, definitely. Um, I'd say for the, well, genuinely for the first eight months of growing the business, I called that almost my hibernation period. So I didn't even tell my parents or my sister, bearing in mind that this William Wood is my mother's dad. I didn't tell her for eight months that I was doing any of this. So they just thought that I turned very quiet on them and, and that I was hibernating. And then in August, I called them and said, guys, for the last eight months, I know that I've been a bit off with you, but I've basically been... Uh, working really hard and I've built a business dedicated to, to your dad and, and, and granddad and um, we've raised £25,000 and this is happening, this is real now. And it was quite a quite an elation actually because you, you build up, um, you're keeping it basically away from your loved ones. So I'd say your, so, your social side, Steve, is massively impacted. Um, luckily for me, I've got a, a very, very solid, small, close-knit friendship group who are really supportive. And also my, my, my girlfriend I've been with for seven years now. So I met her when I first moved to London and she has seen the brand grow from a sketch in a one bed flat in Collier's Wood to where we are today with customers in 50 countries, five collections. Um, and it's, it's, it's just been an incredible journey. But I'd say, as you say, it's, it's, it's a lot of sacrifice from a social standpoint. When I interviewed you back in 2019, um, and you was obviously doing part Lloyd's, part this, and you said to me at that point, I think it was, I'm going to be leaving within about six to nine months. And I, I believed you, but obviously, you know, not knowing you super well back then, 
there's always, you know, a little bit of, oh, is he really going to, like, is he actually really going to take that leap? Mm -hmm. How much was you turning over then in comparison to how much you're turning over right now? So when, when, when I was on the podcast with you, we were turning over about 200 to 250 grand. A year? A year. Now we have broken a million pounds in annual revenue. So we've, we've brought the seven figure mark, which I would say puts us into the top 10 to 15 British watchmakers by revenue. Um, but also what's important there is as an ex-banker, for me, it's not all about turnover. It's all about bottom line. It's all about profit. Um, yeah, what I'm saying is I interviewed a guy called Alfie Best yeah. who owns um, Wildcrest Park Homes. Yeah. One of the wealthiest men in the UK. Um, he's also got park homes in Europe and also in America. And I think he says this very famous quote, which is turnover is vanity, is vanity and profit is sanity. Mm -hmm. How important is that to you? Oh, it's it's everything. It it's everything because without investors, without debt, every single decision that we make as a business we have to make sure that we are absolutely certain that we want to deploy our capital there because at the end of the day, it is, it's not somebody else's investment. And I think this is another good important point is when you're using your own money, the decisions that you make, the, the intensity on them is just massively upped. Um, and also you, you really then analyze how impactful that investment was. So we sit down, if, if we're going to do a big investment, we'll sit down, we'll reflect on it. We'll decide whether we should do it. If we do, we'll then reflect two, three, four, five, six months later as to whether that was actually the right thing to do. Because I think so many businesses these days, they'll scale up, they'll take private equity, maybe, I don't know, one to 10 million, but investors will only come on when there is an exit route. And the ch not the challenge, the good thing about us is I don't have an exit route. I want to retain 100% of the business, run it like a family office and build a real sort of generational legacy. Um, so what it means is when it comes to raising capital, it draws us out of the equation, but that's exactly where we want to be. I want to have full autonomy. Um, because another thing that I said from the outset, Steve, was I want to be able to do this business from anywhere in the world, just with my laptop. I want it to be as automated as possible. Last year, me and my, my missus, uh, worked and lived remotely in Mexico for six months. And I was just saying earlier, we're off to Cape town in two weeks time to do uh, two months out there as well. So it just shows that you, we, we live in a generation where you can grow a substantial seven figure business, which can be automated and has an exciting ethical customer base from anywhere in the world. Yeah, you very much got a lifestyle business, mm -hmm. which I think, um, which I think trumps a typical business. You know, typical business people are looking at you know the bottom line, and that that is super important because without the bottom line, the profits, there is no business. Mm -hmm. But if you can get something that you can tour the world with, my ours here is is sort of the same but different. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could sit on a, a laptop and, and actually make the money. I could make the calls and obviously mm -hmm. could generate the sales. But I think myself and Joe at, the, at this present point in time need to be like the heartbeat in, inside, the, inside the brand. Yeah. But I think what's similar to yours is we do art shows around the world. Mm -hmm. Dubai, we've done it in Mexico City, Spain. Well, obviously, mm -hmm. we've done it at the Saatchi Gallery. So even though we can't really step outside of it, we need to kind of be in it at this present point in time. 
we get to still tour the world and take our, our brand and our products around the world and, and experience life like that. Cool. I mean, we just got back from New York, done a documentary there I saw in, that. Yeah. In, in November, which comes out pretty soon. If uh, Chris pulls his finger out, I'm only <laughs> joking. He's, he's, <laughs> um, so yeah, Chris put it, putting it together. Um, but yeah, it allows us to go around the world and, and, and kind of enjoy life as well. Because I think as, as an entrepreneur, business person, sometimes you get so immersed into your business mm everything else kind of falls away family life social life traveling you know things that you really enjoy mm-hmm. um, on that note um i think the most important thing when someone's analyzing a successful person mm. or someone that is driven for me it's about looking at their daily habits yeah i think it's their daily habits is a big telltale sign whether they're going to be a success or not mm-hmm. whether they're a lazy person or not whether they're a creative person or not someone that has self-worth yeah um, I know you've got a lot of self-worth, but just to share with me again and the audience, what is your daily routine like if you're not living abroad? Let's just say you're here. Mm-hmm. I'm all about winning the mornings. I think that you have to wake up with a fresh mind. And I have a, I have certain windows of productivity. You're probably exactly the same. So I find that between the hours of, let's say, 8 a.m. and... 10 a.m. I'm very, very productive. But if I can wake up at 6 a.m. and I I have lists the prior day, which means that when I wake up, I know exactly what I'm going to do that day. I am never going to get through my, my list. I was talking about this with a friend. For the last seven years, my, my life has been basically a permanent list. You add to it, you remove from it, you add to it, you remove it. But it feels like you're work, waking up every single day with a purpose. And I think I do have some friends as well who who struggle with things like procrastination. And I think if you're not waking up with a, a list of activities and things to do, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to have a really strong day. Mm. So 6 a.m. wake up, um, good hearty breakfast, nice and healthy. I like to eat clean. Uh, I would What's go out, eating clean to you then? Let, let, let's hear what you, what you consume. Eating clean. I like to have things like good fats. So good fats feed the brain. Things like avocado, um, peanut butter, uh, brown bread, uh, porridge as well, things which are a slow release of energy. Again, things which are actually feeding your body. I think people forget that your body ultimately is a big machine. Whatever you put into it is going to be the output and the results that that come from it. Um, So I like to get out. I like to go for a run. I find that going for a run is a bit like autopilot for me. I get the most creative and inspiring ideas ever when I'm on my run. And I'll find that I'll send my I'll send voice memos to our head of marketing and PR when I have these these ideas that come through. And I th- sometimes I think to myself, bloody hell, how has my brain gone there? But rather than doing meditation, I think everybody has their outlet like that. And then really, Steve, it's about breaking your day up to make sure that you are ticking these tasks off, but hitting your areas of productivity. There is nothing wrong throughout the day with having a slump, with having a period where you're like, oh shit, I feel a bit low now. As long as you can work out ways to nip it in the bud and get back into that rhythm again. Big, big um, role model that I take inspiration from is David Goggins um, and his book, You Can't Hurt Me. That is just, he's a phenomenal character for anybody who hasn't read that book. Um, He basically went from 
a uh, what he classed as a as, as a low life somebody who he didn't respect himself and he went on to be to become a, a navy seal and he was really overweight and he's gone on to achieve ultra marathon running and everything and his mentality is you, you just have to do it it's all about the consistency the routine the discipline um you and i just said earlier that it's been two and a half years since the last podcast and every day we have done the exact same things every day and look what we've managed to achieve in that two and a half year period mm. it's mental how quickly life goes eh? oh it's scary mate yeah, yeah. so scary um, i know you're very much on your 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 health and fitness um just a small segment then how important is it to be training, whether that is running, whether that's doing boxing, football, whether that's lifting weights in the gym, whether that's doing, I don't know, yoga. Um, how important is it for you to like stimulate your mind and get the juices flowing? Uh, it's a core, core part of my daily routine. Without it, I feel, I feel sloppy. I feel like I need to almost get an itch out of my system. I definitely think there's a direct correlation between somebody who can push themselves in fitness and somebody who can push themselves in business. I mean, if you think about the fact that, like the fight that you have coming up, you can go toe-to-toe with, a, with, a, with an opponent. It's exactly the same thing in, in business, really, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone um, because physical exhaustion and mental exhaustion are, are very similar. Um, but again, as David Goggin says, when you think you are basically have zero in the tank, you're only 40% there, 40%. If you think like that, you can just push yourself so much harder to that to that next level. Well, um, I listened to, I've actually got David Goggin's book. I haven't listened to it yet. I'm going through Ant Middleton's at the moment, which is uh, First Man In, mm-hmm. I think it is. Um, just, just started listening to that. Um, I also listened to people like Andy Frisella, mm-hmm. Um he used to have, it's now changed, it was the MFCEO. I think he's rebranded now. And actually, he sort of flipped slightly like the typical uh, alpha male, go hard, go home mentality. He said, yeah, like, I, do, I do that. And obviously, I think that's important. But he said, oh, I'm also quite a, a lazy entrepreneur. Mm. And someone was like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. I, I know that during the whole entire day, I'm mm. going to have some dips. You yep. know, my energy is going to be low. I'm going to be emotionally exposed. I'm going to feel a bit low. I'm going to feel a little bit, even insecure sometimes, because mm. I think to be permanently up all the time, unless you're on Red Bull, mm. 700 Shit. coffees, yeah. or cocaine or something mad like that, mm-hmm. then you are going to feel the ups and downs of the day. And you're exactly. going to get, your son's going to feel under pressure. Things are not going to go so right. He said, just like you said, he said, I put a list together. Mm-hmm. I have three to six things on my list. Whether I get that list done within an hour or whether mm-hmm. it takes me six hours, once I'm done, mm-hmm. I'm done. Yep. And they have a list for the next day. He said, don't underestimate that. Look, if you do feel low, that's fine. Just mm-hmm. embrace it. But get through your list. Mm-hmm. And then once you've got through your list, then you move on to tomorrow's list. And then it's the consistency again. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people fall into the trap of you've got to be 100 miles per hour 24 hours a day seven days a week every single week every Mm -hmm. single month every single year Mm -hmm. until you make it and i think actually that can be a little bit of bad advice Mm -hmm. it's not that that, that's not healthy is it really you're gonna you're gonna burn yourself out but oh I, i completely agree with what you're saying there because you have to also make sure that you're setting yourself achievable goals throughout the day you don't want to get to the end of the day and have done nothing and have done none of the goals because you're going to feel like you've achieved nothing in the day but i think what you're saying steve is people overlook massively 
compound <laughs> consistency, don't they? Yeah. If you, I, I think we live in a generation where people just want things right now. And look at me. I mean, I'm, I, I have a 50-year vision. Who, who, who walks around saying they have a 50-year vision, for God's sakes? But if you start to plot your life in that manner, if things don't go well in a day or in a week or in a month, that's one month in 50 years. So it sort of gives you a comfort that you're 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 floating in the right direction or you're heading you sort of you're you're heading for the north star as long as you're heading in that direction and it's just baby steps over time the consistency is just absolutely it, it's actually outrageous yeah one more point about when you left uh, Lloyd so obviously you had a really good uh, you was there for some time uh, the the face of your sector and what you were doing building up a lot of confidence, a lot of experience, making some really good money as well at that age. Um, what was it like when you actually handed in your, your notice saying, look, I'm going to move on to this? Um, was there anyone around you, whether it's family, friends, peers in the bank, who held a bit of jealousy or a bit of negativity or even tried to say things to hold you back? Did you come across any challenges? So not within the bank, um, but... I have it. So I have an interesting uh, dynamic with my parents where I'd say my dad is more of a risk taker. Well, he definitely is. He's He's been an entrepreneur. He's grown a fantastic financial services business over his his time up in the Northeast. And then he built up a, a, a big property portfolio. And my mom is more risk averse. So I always find that when you're having conversations with your loved ones and especially your parents, I feel like I, I, I've gained a bit of both of them, if that makes sense. So, which is a good thing because if if I had my dad's approach, hell, I would have quit Lloyd's maybe a little bit too early. If I had my mom's approach, I'd still be there earning 100 grand a year with what I call the, the golden handcuffs. How I felt when I handed my notice in. So I'd just come back from six months in Mexico. I was That was a six-month sabbatical from Lloyd's, you see. I went back into, uh, into work and the job. And within two weeks, I knew of how far I'd grown as an entrepreneur and a person living and working in, in Mexico for six months that I couldn't, I physically couldn't do what I was being asked to do at Lloyd's Bank anymore. And I was running around, I was on a run around Tooting Common. It was about 8.30 in the morning. And I just called my boss, Max, who, by the way, has been um, one of the biggest supporters and still to this day is one of the biggest supporters of, of the brand and one of my closest mates. And I think that's important. Having a boss who's actually fully behind what you're trying to achieve was key. And I just said, look, it's it's come to the end of, uh, end of the road. We've worked together for six years now. And the business has got to a stage where I just I can't be in two places at once. And uh I'm 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 going to go after it, and I'm I'm going to go for fulfilment now, rather than the situation that I've that I've been in, and the the rest was history, really from there. Good stuff. What I admire about with what with what you've done, um, obviously it's grown, it's turned into this household name, um, but like you said earlier, it's automated and it's systemized, and it's something that eventually we need to do here a bit more. Um, like I said, I feel like I need to be in the business a lot more. And they do say a true business is is not when you're in it, it's when you step away from it, it's still working, it's still growing, and that's what you've got. Talk to me about like how you went from being a bit hands-on to hands-off, but it's still growing, it's still operating, how the online works, how do you have... Because when I first interviewed you, it was more about 
this is what I'm doing. This is the direction I'm taking. And now the language is what we are doing. Mm-hmm. So what that implies is you've got a team. Yep. You know, you've got people in different departments now. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about the key individuals, how you've employed more people, what they do. Mm-hmm. How's the business become a lot more systemized? And how you've got more like an online presence and how that works. Mm-hmm. So... Uh- I think it comes back to the point of knowing from the outset as well that I was wanting to grow a business which would be fully automated because by doing that from the beginning, I knew that the processes, the procedures and everything, I wa- basically I wasn't going to go, okay, what I want is I want a high street presence, I want to have a head office and I want it to be in London. Well, then what I've done is I've taken the dream of me having a rem- remote business and I've just planted myself in the shop um, which is not what I was trying to do. But at some stage, we will we will move into retail. So effectively, the way the business works, we have, we have Shopify, which I think is one of the best, but well, I think it is the best business in the world. So that's the, the back end of our website um, that allows us to be able to build an, an off-the-shelf uh, website. We can integrate all of our images on Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, so that you can click straight through with a shopping basket, straight through to our Shopify web- website, and you can buy. From there, the customer is then put on an automated journey. So at the minute you click purchase, you will then receive an automated email from me, welcoming you to the business, thanking you so much for your support. Uh, from there, we then have a fulfillment center who's based in the Northeast. They receive the Shopify order. They Uh, scan, let's say, a Royal Mail or a UPS shipping label. That then sends another automated email, which gives the customer a link and their tracking number so that they can track the watch all the way through to fulfillment. When they receive the watch, they'll get another automated email from me asking how the watch is with a link where they can leave a Trustpilot review. We've got almost 900 Trustpilot reviews now, and we're a five-star Trustpilot uh, business, which is phenomenal. Um, something which isn't automated, but I really enjoy is we have over 3000 customers now. I've spoken to every single one of them personally, and I still to this day do. And the team, so talking about the team, the team tell me that I should take a step back from that. But hell, I enjoy it. I, I like talking to customers. I like hearing how they found out about us. I like learning about their journey, hearing about what they think about the watch when it, when, they, when they receive it. Uh, and I think it's really, really important to to offer that sort of really personal service in a world where we are living in such a saturated industry such as watches. We have a head of marketing and PR, so she covers all of the PR and marketing internationally. We have an external PR lady um, who gets us uh, press with all of the big publications. We've got a fantastic big piece coming out in the Financial Times later this month on our five-year anniversary as a brand, which is really exciting. We've got a sales rep now in the US who messages chiefs and deputy chiefs because it's also worth saying that we actually make watches for fire services too. So these aren't just bought by firefighters and watch enthusiasts. We've made watches for the London Fire Brigade, Melbourne Fire Brigade, Kuwait Fire Force, Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Kent Fire and Rescue Service. We're speaking to the New York Fire Department now, which is a whole nother underbelly of the business. Um, so that's really cool. We've got paid social media guys based in the UK. We've, we've also got a, a local agency in the US. Uh, designers, I try and give back to the Northeast. So I've got two designers based up in the Northeast. And we've got our printers based up there as well who run off our leaflets and merchandise and packaging. Um, 
yeah, so it's it's it, it's it's cool because now it's creating employment, which mm. is which is really good. It's it's giving back. Mm. Um, how many people do you employ? Uh, we have about well, we've got f- four, but I would say five if you include contractors. Okay, and just you know, going from a one-man band, obviously you had other people helping you externally, but inside the business, it was just you. What's that like? mindset and even like the the day-to-day runnings like managing or not really managing but you know systemizing that team like what sort of challenges does that pose it's taken a lot of pressure off me when when you start the business and you are wearing all these different types of hats my god it is uh, it's difficult talking about trying to manage your social life and having a what our class is like a balanced diet as a human being, making sure you can get to the gym, making sure you have healthy relationships, um, making sure that you can actually just have hobbies and interests. That's difficult when it's just you. So I've found that with with just more brain power and more people who are all as passionate as me to push the business on is hugely helpful. And somebody said to me the other day, if you hire four, let's say B plus people, that will trump any day of the week one A-star person. And the re- so if you class the founder as the A-star person, nobody's ever going to have the passion that you have. Nobody's ever going to want to stay up until bloody midnight or the early hours of the morning driving the business on. So rather than fighting it and just being you, realize that you have to bring other people on board for the journey. And together, it's, uh, it's phenomenal how much more you can, you can push the business on. And also cool that they share in the excitement too. Definitely, definitely. Um, you spoke about earlier about um, selling the, the story, having an authentic story. Customers, consumers, purchasers, you know, collectors, investors, um, they like to buy something that has a story. For example, um, I'm not from the art market traditionally, but obviously I found myself right place, right time, 2014, and came across this wonderful story about Richard Hamilton. If someone were to today come in and say, I want to buy that particular piece there, kind of sell it to me i wouldn't start with selling that actual painting as in yep. it's a horse and rider it's gold it's a little bit brass it's a masterpiece it's from this year you know all that kind of stuff i would literally talk about the story mm-hmm. i would also if they are an investor I'll talk about the lifestyle that they could achieve mm-hmm. by holding on to this for 5 10 15 20 years and realizing a very good gain yep. and what that money can give them um with you if you were to sell me one of these watches today how would you go about doing it Exactly the same way. So I would be talking about my grandfather. William Wood was a firefighter, served up in Newcastle, huge, huge role model in my life. What makes our watches incredibly unique is the fact that we take his legacy and the legacy of first responders and firefighters internationally, and we actually trap them inside the watch. I wouldn't even call this watch, Steve, a watch. I'd call it a time capsule because you are locking in real authentic British firefighting history into every single one of our watches. But also you can wear it with pride. So it's not one of these purchases where you feel like, oh God, it's it's a luxury purchase. I don't want to feel almost guilty for buying it. We have donated over £50,000 this in 2021 alone to the firefighters charity in the UK who helped my grandfather when he was alive and the Tunnel to Towers Foundation in New York uh, for the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. So what I'd say is, rather than come into a conversation 
with your friends and them all sitting around the table and having, you know, the similar kind of watches, our watches actually have genuine authenticity beating through every single component and you will become what I would say, uh, one of our biggest ambassadors because you will want to share the story with your friends too. That's mega. Yeah, I really, I, I love that stuff. Um, turn over a million, yep. uh, gross to the million, okay? Mm-hmm. Big, big number. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that's only going to go up and up and up. Um, but what I love about it is your price point isn't actually that big. Mm-hmm. So typically speaking, a Rolex, I mean, I've got Daytona on, well, they're fetching now like 20, 22, 23 grand. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the watch market, that's relatively cheap now. I mean, some, 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 some watches, Patek Philippe, AP, some other uh, style of Rolexes, they are going for hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just had a meeting with a friend of mine who very much knows the watch market inside out, the luxury watch, you know, side of stuff. And he just sold uh, a friend to a friend of his a rose, sorry, a platinum Daytona, which is very similar to this, but yeah, platinum. I know what you mean. It's got the black bezel. It's got the sort of uh, icy blue face, £125,000. And I remember when they were topping 40-odd thousand, maybe £50,000, which I thought back then was a lot of money. Mm. So if you were telling me that, you know, you were selling watches at 50 grand and you're turning over a million pound a year, I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. But your, your, your watches are at a very, very affordable price rate. Uh, mm-hmm. Rate. So you are shifting units. Mm-hmm. How many units are you shifting a year? We're shifting about 1,250, maybe 1,350 units a year. Wow. And, and what is your price point? Uh, the average order is 880 pounds. That's actually... 2021, the average order value on Shopify, 800. And the ambitions with new designs, new collections and new price points, are you going to start pushing up, you know, trying to get to the maybe eventually a 10 grand, a 15 grand piece, or you're always going to keep it within the the reach of most of the consumers out there? It's always going to be in reach because at the end of the day, we've created a brand which is dedicated to firefighters and first responders. We want to make sure that they can aspirationally still achieve purchasing one of these products. And I think the minute we start moving to a 10 grand plus watch, um, you're then bringing it away from the values of why you ultimately set the business up in the first place. I mean, that being said, the watches that you have here, they retail for two and a half. Okay. Um, so that's our fully Swiss-made chronograph series, um, SW510 movement. It's got, in case of fire break glass, it's a beautiful, beautiful watch. But I think that's probably the upper echelon of, of, of where we would take the price point. Um, that being said, I, I think 1,300 watches is actually... Because I'm always into brands who basically produce high quality, low volume. And it's funny because I, I like it when, when we converse because obviously the price of the prices of, of your art pieces, you won't have to sell many art pieces to break that, that seven-figure mark. Um, I think that I'm not selling many watches to break that seven-figure mark. So it's always nice to meet other entrepreneurs who have a retail price which is... I don't know, five or six or even 10 times more than what you're producing because mm. it just shows that there are other ways to to, to do business too. Yeah, for sure. So um, let's talk about the products that you've got here. So you've got a collection here and then you've also got, which I think is a wicked design and again, it's authentic to, to, to the, the message that you're pushing. Um, 
you've got the the higher, more premium version of the of the watches there. What makes them a bit more premium opposed to to these? The reason for the premium nature of those is a lot. A lot is to do with the movement uh, and how it's assembled. So, fully Swiss assembled. The SW510 movement is a chronograph series. So it's got the the two pusher buttons on the side of the case that operate op, operate the two eyes. The eyes on the dial represent the dashboard of a fire engine, which is really cool. And the two sub hands represent the pressure pump gauges uh, that you'd look at when you're actually firing the water out of a fire hose. Um, to get your hands on a movement like that, it's 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 expensive stuff, and that's that's where basically the markup comes. Um, is because a chronograph movement allows you to have different functions. You can have a stopwatch and you have the ability also to be able to measure how many rotations the chronograph has actually done on the watch as well with at the same time a small seconds hand at the 9 p.m. indices. So it's a really cool watch that has more functions than just a, a straightforward 3i automatic watch which is in front of you here. Okay. And how much, let's say this red one here, how much would that cost? This watch here, depending upon the movement, if you go for the Seiko movement, £695. If you want the Swiss movement, £1,150. Have you moved your margins or have you moved your price point up since we spoke last? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. As, as we've grown as a brand, we've realized that there's so many brands in the marketplace who are undervaluing themselves because they haven't got a value proposition. So they'll just be producing a general watch with what I deem to be a, a lacking in a USP and they don't give back and they don't maybe have the upcycling or the story. And what it's doing is it's setting the bar in the industry so that when people see a, a Seiko movement in an automatic watch, you could get a watch with a Seiko movement for 150 quid. So then they look at our watch for 695 and go, why would I buy that when I can get one for 100 quid? And I'm, I'm sort of saying... Well, the very fact you're asking that question means you're not our customer because you don't appreciate that we have the story, we have the upcycling, we give back, this. the watch is full of heritage and history, and it's a bloody good movement. They're just looking purely at the components involved to produce the watch, and I call it a race to the bottom. So we realized that we needed to price in just how much our, our watches are worth, and our, our watches are worth... Um, what you're paying for them. There's there's hours and, well, there's months actually of craftsmanship that goes into them. And uh, over five years of producing watches, our return rate is less than 0.1%, which oh, is nuts. Really good. Yeah. Um, since we've done the last podcast then, um, how many different publications, how many different um, worldwide magazines, new, newspapers, media outlets have you been in? Yeah, we're not doing bad. We're not doing bad. And um, which ones? We've been in Forbes twice. We are coming out in the Financial Times. We were in the Financial Times uh, last year. We were in Hedinki. I'm sure you know Hedinki, biggest watch publication in the world. For the last three years running, we've been chosen by GQ, Men's Health, and Esquire as the top men's watch to buy in 2020, 2020 2019, 2020, and 2021, which is pretty cool. Um, we've been in the Gentleman's Journal, uh, Esquire Singapore, um, the, the list, the list goes on really, which is, which is really cool. And, and we're really grateful as well because journalists absolutely love our brand. We were at the watch pro salon in November, uh, at a hotel just in, 
um, Leicester Square, beautiful hotel, the Londoner. And journalists were turning up wearing our watches. I mean, that's pretty cool because normally journalists are quite unbiased, but for them to rock up to your stand, a very, very reputable line of journalists who just write about watches and are wearing your William Wood Valiant watch. Pretty good statement. Yeah, humbling and a feel-good factor for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you said about moving to south of France, being a bit more remote and and maybe travelling around a bit more, which which I think is great. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Um, The... The, the question I'm going to ask then is, that sounds amazing, but how can you, and this is like me trying to play a bit of devil's advocate yeah, okay. with you, yeah. how, can you, how can you kind of keep on creating, keep on making the business better, evolving the business, if maybe you're slightly more detached from it? What, what's, the, what's the answer to that? So the first thing I'd say is, I wouldn't say that I'm detached from it. I've put these procedures and automation processes in place um, to allow us to have the ability to free up our time and be more attached to it. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So by by removing all of our brain power from fulfillment, from accounting, from receiving orders from email communication that gives us more time to think about the really important stuff so i think if anything covid's proved steve is that you can be connected anywhere in the world now and uh, most of the conversations that i have are over skype um we're speaking to people in america in asia um all around europe constantly and we're, we're doing that that by by skype um I think the other thing which is overlooked as well is just how much potential this brand has. We are now the biggest firefighter watch brand in the world, which is that a big statement? Probably not because I don't know many other firefighter watch brands, but But it's quite a cool, it sounds great. Yeah. Um, But where I'm going with that is watch brands have produced astronaut watches. If you think of Amiga and the Snoopy watch. They've created racing watches. They've created military watches. There ain't any firefighter watches. So what we're finding is we are first to the boardroom and first to the table with every fire service in the world to produce a watch for them. Now, that's pretty crazy because we can now contact the biggest fire services in the world, speak to the chiefs, and they'll go, do you know what? Yeah, let's make a watch for 100, 200, 300, 500 firefighters. Let's put the emblem of the fire service in the back. Let's engrave it with the fire service, the firefighter payroll number. So my aspiration over the next five years is to make sure that we gain as much of that market share as possible before one of these big brands do come along and say, do you know what is a good idea? Let's do firefighter watches. Now, even if they did, there isn't any other brand out there who has a story like ours and produces watches just dedicated to firefighting. Well, they're going to have to do one of two things. They're either going to have to make up, if it's something like a Rolex, for example, they're going to have to make up a narrative almost or force like a bit of a story in order to, you know, try to create what you've done, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, anyone that knows watches or anyone that likes to buy good products will probably see through that and mm-hmm. it's not going to come all, come across authentic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It probably won't. The alternative thing is they're going to have to probably buy buy into your company or buy you out eventually, which mm-hmm. I guess is a nice problem to have. I know you're not looking for that right now, but let's just say in five years' time, Rolex says, look, 
you're taking a bit of a lion's share of this sector. We need to be dominating and, and mm-hmm. uh, monopolizing that area. We're going to offer you 10, 15 million for your brand. Would you take it? So I think I've, I've mulled this, this over. So in my view, I mean, you know who I am, Steve, very straight talking. I think that discussion is inevitable. By the way that I'm moving, the rate we're moving and, and what, what I'm trying to achieve and, and how driven we are and how much of a great team we have. I think it's a matter of when, not if, that we're going to have crazy offers like that come through. Um, I think if there's anything I've learned, the older I get and the more experience I get is to never say never. I think the the Johnny on the podcast maybe two and a half years ago would have said, no, this is me forever. But with a a challenging supply chain. The lead time now to produce watches is about six months um, with things like global pandemics. It's certainly getting harder, not easier. That being said, um, how it's gonna be, it would be very difficult to hand over the reins of a business that has my granddad's name on it to a conglomerate and making sure that they have the same authenticity, the same hunger, the same passion that, I do. And I think the answer is probably that's going to be a very difficult sort of line to toe. There might be um, a middle ground, though. Possibly. Where a sit in founder position, yeah. You, you still sit there, they, they employ you for two, three, four, five years, uh, or maybe for the lifetime on a healthy wage. Mm-hmm. Maybe still retain some shares, but you get a big payout, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So they own most of the company. You still own a bit. You still get to steer it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that's a nice problem to have. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about nice problems to have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, one of the reasons why I asked you to come back is because over three and a half years since I've been doing my podcast and it's grown and I've had some really good guests on, I've been approached by a few companies to do partnerships, sponsorships, brand alignments, there's all different kind of versions. And um, I had a conversation with you and also my, my, my boxing trainer, a guy called Charlie Beat. And um, <coughs> I just helped um, put you guys together. You're yeah. now doing some, some uh, how can I say, sponsorship or let's say work together, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool. I've obviously had some of the boxers from Boxing Booth from my podcast, including Harlem Eubank, Mick Conlon, Dan Morley. Um, I'm looking like I'm going to have Josh Kelly on board very soon. I'm hoping to get someone like Shannon, Shannon Courtney on board. And there's a bunch of others. Uh, there's, there's people I spar regularly and... Um, I just love the the journey of 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 athletes, but especially boxers. I can really relate to them. Mm. Anyway, so um, we're going to be kind of doing doing this brand alignment or brand partnership together. So this yep. is it, announcing it. Um, got some notes here from Charlie because he wanted me to to say a few things. So Charlie's obviously the head coach of the uh, London Fire 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 Brigade Boxing. Um, what? So what's the deal now with yourself and Charlie's brand? How, how are you guys kind of aligned and how are you helping each other? Yeah, so we support uh, Charlie and the boxing club, um, basically making sure that they have the financing for Charlie to do a hell of an amazing job of, of what he does at the minute. Because as you can appreciate in the fire service, the, the mental health drain is is scary. I mean, at the end of the day, these um, guys and girls are running into burning buildings and... Yep. Uh, when you have something like boxing as an outlet where you can 
blast the hell out of a bag. You can have discipline, routine. Um, Charlie is just doing such great positive things in the LFB. And as soon as you connected us and I met him, I just thought this is a this is a match made in heaven. So we're, we're really, really proud to be able to support Charlie and the LFB Boxing Club. It was definitely like a hand to glove. I know you mm. guys, you, you kind of have this sort of similar personality. You're yeah. very, very, again, authentic. You're very... Uh, clean-hearted individuals mm. you know you're both very very driven i mean you know charlie sacrifices a lot um you know he's a family man first and foremost got three kids got obviously a wife obviously got all the the other uh things that come with that you know the dog mm -hmm. you know the house you know the, the the expenses he's obviously a fire firefighter has been doing that for a long time he's tried to blaze his own trail a few times where he's setting up um boxing academies inside the boxing uh, inside the the fire brigade it took off, then it was pushed back because of COVID. He yep. lost he lost the funding. Now he's got his own brand. Yep. Um, obviously, he's aligning himself with people like yourself. Obviously, Boxing Booth, he's a professional boxing coach. He took Shannon Courtney to become a world champion. Mm -hmm. he, he's only in his first female boxer he ever took on board. He's now looking after Chris Eubank's cousin, a guy called Harlem Eubank, who's making some great noises, and he's going to be a, you know, a force for the future. And he's got a, a few others coming up. And... What a lot of people don't realise that when you see people on TV like when Charlie is, you already you automatically think, oh yeah, he's a professional boxing coach. He must be rolling in the money. I tell you what, he's made so many sacrifices, not seeing his kids, not seeing his wife. You know, actually putting up his own money to make his own brand and make these fighters the best version they can be. And with your help, I know he, you know, he's so thankful, he's so humble because of it. So I want to be working with. I think the trio, yep. myself, you and Charlie, we could Exciting do some really, times. really good stuff. Me there too. could be some synergy, like getting maybe podcast people on board. I can get you some clients for the for the watches. Yep. No doubt Charlie's going to be giving some value as well. I think it's going to be a nice little bit of um, synergy between us Me moving too. forward. Yeah, yeah, we're excited to be part of it. And as you say, I think the best expression you said there is it fits hand in glove, doesn't it? It yeah. definitely does. And the last thing as well, <clears throat> we, uh, we are now brand partners with the London Watch Show. So Woodbury House is the official brand partner for 2022 with Mr. Charlie Groom's company. And last year when we done a presentation out, we, we, we received so much, uh, so much good feedback. We had footballers there, Kieran Richardson, Jody Morris. We had some really good collectors there. And what I love about watches, art and the luxury sector is so much cross-pollination, you know, there's so yep. much crossover. So you're going to be... Mm -hmm. Having your own booth, being affiliated to the London Watch Show, is that correct? That's right, yeah. So we've got our own exhibition stand there. Um, we are also, which is sort of fresh news, um, we're going to be bringing along the world's first William Wood Watches motorbike made from upcycled firefighting materials. Um, so that will be on display at our stand and customers will be able to buy raffle tickets for £100 and on International Firefighters Day, on the 4th of May, 2022, somebody's going to win that motorbike and it's worth 30 grand and there's only 300 tickets. So you've got a one in 300 chance of winning. So I'm sure our stand will be popping off at the London Watch Show. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see it. It's crazy. What sort of type of bike does it look like? It's uh, Indian Scout Bobber. So it's the American company. It was built by a sister custom, custom bike shop in Scotland. It's finished in fire engine red. It's got 24 carat 
um, gold foil detailing, just like how they used to do it on a vintage fire engine. The handlebars and the seat is uh, wrapped with red upcycled London Fire Brigade fire hose. The handlebars themselves are made from repurposed wood from the side of a 1975 Leyland fire engine. The back of our Triumph watch is actually pressed into the gas tank of the bike. So when you drive the bike, it powers the movement of the watch. So you'll see in case of fire break glass looking back at you. The back of the chivalrous watch, the limited edition coins are placed on the side of the handlebars and the dust caps are made from the crowns of our William Wood watches, which is a 1920s British brass firefighter's helmet. Which we have here. Mm -hmm. Beautiful it's stuff. It's mental. Okay, so look, um, where can people find the watches? Where can they see your journey? How can they follow you? What else is coming up in regards to new design, new publications, new things for, for the brand? Where can people go to a central point and literally just follow the journey? Best place to follow us is through Instagram. Uh, our handle is at William Wood Watches. Uh, our website is williamwoodwatches.com. And you can sign up to our mailing list. You can do that through the website and that will allow you to be able to follow our journey. Uh, so much planned this year. Uh, we've got two new collections coming out. We've got two new upcycled straps coming out. Uh, we've got more charitable auctions. We've got obviously the motorbike, which is going to get raffled off. Um, we've got exhibition stands at the London Watch Show. We've got one at... Uh, watch time uk we've got watch pro salon as well so any of these watch events you can come down in person get to meet me and the team see the watches um and it's just going to be an exciting yeah last question i asked you this last time be happy never content you gave me a version of that back in 2019 what would you say be happy never content means to you in 2022 i think my version to that has evolved quite some way because I've realized after quitting Lloyd's that it's all about, it's all about fulfillment. Um, and what I've realized as well is when you follow fulfillment, ironically, money and the other things actually come with it. So it's just making sure that you are happy with your current situation, but that you're driven to, to, to keep pushing on and keep pushing the business. A bit like what you said earlier, make sure I don't just bugger off to south of France, Steve, and that I'm actually still very, very attached to the business, which, which I am. Good stuff. All right. Thank you for your time. If you're enjoying yeah. uh, the podcast, please subscribe for sure. Uh, follow, follow William Wood Watches. Look out for what they're doing. Please come down to London Watch Show. It's happening in March. Uh, there's a second one at, at the back end of the year. Uh, be great to to meet everybody. I know Johnny, you said you might be releasing or doing a podcast at some point. Yeah. So I'll be looking forward to hearing that. Good. And uh, always remember to be happy, never content. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Steve.